Well, hello, this is Gary, and you're listening to Thinking Out Loud. Sunday, November 22nd, 22nd, 2020. As has been the uh, kind of ongoing theme and topic of most of my podcast, keep it in the realm of the uh, current political situation in this country. I hope to eventually, once uh, Trump is gone and he's hopefully a distant memory, and start transitioning to other things to talk about. Played rugby for many years. I ran track and cross country in college and was in fraternity in college. There was a lot of fun experience I've had and a lot of interests well beyond, uh, you know, talking about the Republican Party and Donald Trump. Uh, just kind of drained on the guy. I was burnt out on Donald Trump and. 1992, but, uh, you know, um, I feel, I don't know, almost like a certain civic duty to kind of continue to speak out against them, um, in the hopes, naive hope, possibly, that, uh, or naive hope, probably, that, uh, there will be people that will, that are currently supporting him, that somehow, some way, they're, they're gonna kind of, revert course, you know, and kind of start making better decisions, you know, that have a more positive impact on them and people around them. So today, I want to take a step back, just kind of look, kind of re-look at the, uh, in particular, the organization that nominated Mr. Trump back in 2016 and and then re-nominated him in 2020 after seeing him um, in office for four years, they nominated him again, the, the grand old party, Republican Party. Uh, commonly refer to themselves many times, and Trump especially, as the party of Lincoln. It's one of those things that is technically true. The, the name of the organization that Abraham Lincoln was a member of was called the Republican Party. But it's really where the similarities kind of end. You know, it's just the name of the organization. The actual professed views, the actual actions, um, are considerably different, you know. And, um, you know, the people in more recent years that have become the sort of leaders of that organization certainly don't have the kind of integrity and respect even through, you know, decades later of history, that Abraham Lincoln did, and does still to this day, even though he's been gone a long, long time. Um, you know, the leaders of the Republican Party are not Abraham Lincoln by any stretch of the imagination. The closest you're going to get is, is Mitt Romney, because he voted to remove Donald Trump from office at the impeachment hearing because Donald Trump abused his power. Donald Trump abused his power as president. He did do that. The Republican Party basically admitted that. They, they just said, that's not a justification for him to lose his job. Abusing your power is not. But Mitt Romney actually voted to remove. And, that, and that's, that's like the 2020 Republican version of being a maverick. Uh, voting to remove someone from their job who abused their power. That's like sort of, you know, 
being the real rebellious person or something in the Republican Party. That's the one that really kind of stands out because all the rest of them went along with it. They just kind of said no to removing Trump, no to firing Trump from his job for abusing his power. And a few months later, they doubled down and said, we're going to nominate him again. He's, he's our choice. He's, he's the guy that represents our values and who we are as an organization and what it is that we represent. Trump. Uh, and so, it's, I think it's good to have kind of a constant reminder, because uh, there's a lot of people that have a certain idea of Trump in their heads that doesn't really have anything to do with the reality of the man. You know, uh, I, it's very strange to be living in a time that's so far after, it's, it's like decades after I first became aware of him, and people have this certain idea of who he was in the past, and it's just like, no, you, you know, he, he was not a highly respected, successful businessman. No, that, that, that's what he presented. He, he presented that image, you know, because he had the money to present that image. And some people bought it, you know, a, a good chunk of people bought it, really. They, they bought that myth. Because they, you know, I, I, whatever, for whatever reason, people bought it, you know. But it was it was just made up. Uh, he was not successful. He was one of the worst, and in some years, in fact, the worst businessman in all of America for many years running. Donald Trump's rise to fame began in the late 70s when him and his father refused to rent their condos, their condominiums to minorities. And those people sued Donald Trump and his father and eventually settled out of court. That was the beginning of Donald Trump's fame, rise to fame. Refusing to rent to minorities because he's racist. And him and his father had certain negative views of people based off their race. It's commonly referred to as racism. He learned an important lesson that day, though, at that, that time back in the 1970s. Uh, one, any, any publicity is good publicity. But... Uh, generally speaking, racism is going to be a negative form of publicity. So if you are a racist, like Donald Trump is and has been throughout his life, you got to find some sort of line to walk to sort of pretend, at least in your public persona, that you aren't because uh, it may be bad for business. But that would be, uh, you, you know, a theme that would kind of follow him throughout his life. And I think that's why he probably got that award back in the 80s or whatever. He, he probably paid someone to, or, you know, he somehow he got on some sort of board or some sort of thing to get an award, a civil rights award, even though he's not a civil rights activist by any stretch of the imagination. You know, he's a wealthy white guy who says racist, wealthy white guy things and does things that are detrimental to minorities and he does them willingly and intentionally specifically because they are detrimental to minorities you, you know so um yeah that, that's been kind of an ongoing theme some of the other ongoing themes throughout donald trump's life was his kind of embracement of greed and kind of wrath you know a sort of vengeful nature when it came to his 
acquiring more. Uh, he didn't really care who he screwed over to get there. He, he felt like he had, he had the right to do whatever he had to do to get more money so that he can buy more toys and prop up a more luxurious lifestyle to the public. And that was kind of his main, that's who he was, you know. Um, but it was all superficial. It was all fake. Uh, Donald Trump behind the scenes was actually a horrible manager of companies uh, and not very good at it at all. Six different companies went bankrupt under Trump's management, under the Trump name. Uh, in some cases, they were basically just fronts for money laundering. Donald Trump has had long-standing known ties to various criminal organizations, both the New York crime families as well as Russian criminal interests as well. Those were, you know, those kind of ties were long-standing, and that's kind of how he was able to get certain projects done. It's just kind of some people in their uh, documentaries about the you know history of New York real estate and stuff like that. So it's kind of mentioned as if it's almost like it was just kind of standard that if you wanted certain types concrete or whatever, you you kind of had to go through the. Uh, the crime, the crime families. So he certainly did, and certainly had those kind of connections uh, throughout his life, throughout his, you know, working life and whatnot. Uh, but that's mostly what he was famous for. I mean, that's what he was known as. Um, you, you, know, you just get that the title to put next to a person's name. They'd usually put like business tycoon or real estate developer or, or whatever. But it's it's not really. That's just sort of a generic term. Uh, what, what he is is just a celebrity who has sort of businesses that he props up that eventually go bankrupt or eventually get into some sort of litigation for various tax issues or you know not paying suppliers or not paying employees or something like that or using illegal immigrants or something like that. Um, long history of that kind of stuff. He's been through, sued many, many times. Um, a lot of times his response will be to sort of countersue and to prolong cases to sort of drain uh, the other, you know, the defendant or the, you know, the plaintiff's uh, resources. And he's just done that kind of time and time again. And that's kind of what he's doing right now to try and subvert the, the will of the people. But, you know, that it's important to kind of remind who that guy was and all because all that stuff happened like prior to him becoming a game show host and it was that becoming a game show host that for whatever reason put him into a level of legitimacy people not understanding i guess that the game show he was hosting was just a game show and the persona he was playing even though the name was donald trump still that persona was a persona it was a character that he he helped create certainly you know but it was just a character Donald Trump, the real person, was not a successful businessman in the light, in the slightest, you know, um, not even kinda. Most of the businesses that are run under the Trump name in some form or another are operating in the red. The ones that Trump does not directly manage, they tend to be more profitable. But Trump himself is horrible at managing organizations, at least in any sort of profitable sense. That's not really what he does. So, um, no, not a good business person. And it's not like, and he's just using the money to, you know, 
write off certain ownership stakes and certain things, write off certain personal vacation homes and try and pretend like they're business expenses and a lot of uh, very tricky tax type stuff. It, it, it's not that he's, you know, donating massive amounts to philanthropic causes. No, that's that's not why his companies are in the red. They're kind of shifting money from one source to another just to sort of give an impression of profit on one. But, it, you know, there's there's really nothing really, there's, there's not a lot of doing. You know, it, it's all just a house of cards or, or whatever. But... That's, he's kind of a microcosm of, of the system as a whole. You know, there, there's massive amounts of monies devoted to tiny groups of people. And, and those individual people, for lack of a better way of describing it, they're not truly worth what they're worth or whatever. It, 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 they're inflated. They have a highly inflated value, you know, because no one individual human is... You know, that exponentially thousands of times worth more than the average human. It's just, you know, or whatever. Um, it's just... But anyway, Trump kind of personifies the sort of elite affluent class. The sort of overprivileged top 2% of society. People born into wealth who never really had to work. And in many cases... Like Trump, he pretended to work. And there was some stuff that he did that sort of did get done. But many of the buildings that have his name on it, it's just a licensing deal. He doesn't own the building. The company leases his name. They pay him a fee to have his name on the building. Because he has a certain brand recognition. The name does stand out. Even if people have a repulsion, like I do, to the name. Other people, less so. So if they see the name, they'll be drawn to it. You know, even though he doesn't own that building. The building owners are just paying him a fee to have his name on their building. Kind of the, basically like an, an opposite of the way like a, uh, a sports stadium would work. You know, most sports stadiums, they, the company that wants to advertise on the stadium, they have to pay a fee to the city or to the owners of the team in order to get their name on the stadium. But Trump was able to work the opposite arrangement, where his his name, his his brand name, is is put on a building, implying some sort of association, um, and he receives a fee for that, for the use of his name. It's very, you know, how he was able to do that, and what is the value of a name? What is the value of celebrity? Apparently, you can acquire a pretty massive amount of wealth and, uh, you know, real, live, tangible money. I mean, not live, but, you know, real, tangible, physical money that you can actually use to buy stuff with simply off of fame. Because that's really all Trump had. He, had. he had just a lot of fame, name recognition. He was on the news a lot. He was a tabloid celebrity, National Enquirer, and uh, all those other kind of gossip mags and stuff. He was constantly... In that kind of thing, you know, we were constantly hearing about him for decades, but it was never because he was accomplishing anything or doing anything grand or noble or virtuous in, in any way. No, that's not what he was famous for. He was kind of a, a, sh a putz, a schmuck, 
you know, a guy that just sort of, you know, was born with a bunch of money and he had a lot of money to throw around and, and buy stupid toys and, you know, private airplanes and helicopter rides and fancy suits and, uh, you know, have, he had tons of affairs and stuff too and all that sort of thing, associations with some wide variety of nefarious characters, you know close associations, not just close, but, you know, they were his inner, innermost circle. Um, and, yeah, it's just... There's just n not really anything virtuous about the man. So it says a lot about an organization when they pick a person like that and, and then pick him again. certainly says a lot about a society when um, after four years of seeing that particular individual be a, be a president and then proceed to lead in the exact way that many who opposed him had feared, even more people vote for him in the second round, thankfully, uh, because Trump was so, so horrendous as president, it did inspire a lot of people to vote him out. And he did indeed get voted out. He did indeed lose the election. But the Republican Party is the organization that is, at least openly, in public, saying that they're standing behind Trump still. You know, some some Republican, uh, you know, leaders in the federal government have even joked about there being a second President Trump presidency. And, uh, you know, even though he lost the election, and that's so, and that's so... He doesn't get a second term. For sure, not now. You know, there's another election in 2024. Was he joking about running again? No. Uh, he'll, he'll definitely do it. He's going to be campaigning for the next four years. Unless he has various court cases to deal with, which he should. Because he's suspected of tax fraud and insurance fraud, which are serious crimes. Um, as well as campaign finance violations. So he, he may have his hands full, but the main reason he's raising money for his campaign right now is for his legal defense to hire lawyers to argue nonsensical, idiotic cases around the country to try and have Democratic votes thrown out. You know. And so far, the only case that's proceeding, at least in some way, or has any chance of making it to the Supreme Court, is a case in which votes that were mailed, postmarked, by Election Day in Pennsylvania, and then were received after Election Day, but were postmarked by Election Day. In other words, were mailed and voted in one of the legally authorized ways to do so. Those particular votes were set aside and counted in a, in a different way or whatever. Trump would like to have all of those votes thrown out because they were received after Election Day, but they were postmarked by Election Day. They were postmarked by Election Day, therefore they are legally valid votes. They are legal ballots because they were postmarked by Election Day. The Trump administration trying to disrupt the post, Postal Service, so it doesn't rop, operate as efficiently, is not a justification for not counting votes. So that was the Trump strategy, though. 
make the post office work less efficient, efficiently so it's so it takes longer to have mail delivered that way if some ballots are received after election day even though they were postmarked by election day maybe there's a chance of having them thrown out and that was kind of, it seems clear now that was kind of the whole intent now why people voted for that is going to be the question for the rest of my life what's going on with people that want that think that's noble or grand he's having to cheat to win he can't win fair and square he can't win over the people yes the vocal minority they're really into him but they're still the minority and as unwilling as they are to admit it they are the minority you know as as well as Trump did in this round two, he got even more votes than last time. He still got his ass kicked. Because he was so bad that many people that probably never voted before felt a certain inner calling to, yeah, you, you need to vote. You gotta in this one. This is, this is important here. You know, Trump is kind of the embodiment of everything undemocratic. You know, he's, he was representing something very different. The Republican Party has continued to stay with them. What does this mean? What is the Republican Party now? Okay, I mean, they, are, they have the same name. Grand Old Party. Republican Party. That's the organization that George W., George Herbert Walker, Ronald Reagan, Gerald Ford, Richard Nixon, pretty sure Dwight D. Eisenhower. Uh, that's probably as far back as I can go in remembering which specific ones. But, you know, that's quite a few of the last bunch, you know, that were Republican, you know. But, and so we tend to sort of think of certain themes or whatever, I don't know, similarities between various Republican leaders, but what is a Republican today? The, the actual people with R's next to their name. What, who are they and what, what do they stand for? And what are the better options? You know? Modern Republicans are mainly about kind of demonizing the Democratic Party. I tend to vote Democrat because I'm progressive. Some of the things I'm for are universal health care, universal basic income, or also known as the freedom dividend, free education, and infrastructure investment. Start with universal health care. What does universal health care mean? It means that through public funds, we properly invest in health care. So, hospitals are properly funded, properly staffed, so that those hospitals can properly treat the population in that area. So, when people in a particular area get sick, they go to the hospital, they get healed, and then they go on with their life. Yeah. The idea that the only possible way we can do healthcare is the way we do it now, where you pay a monthly fee to a for-profit company that company uses that money you're paying them to 
pay dividends to shareholders, pay bonuses to execs, and a small portion to actually cover direct costs associated with your health care when you, when you do indeed go. But you basically pay them a monthly fee, sometimes it's several hundred dollars if not more a month. When you get sick, you pay more money to the hospital at the time, what's called a deductible, and then the insurance company will pay a portion of your bill. Huh. Doesn't really make a lot of sense, but we've just become accustomed to it that that's, that's how it is. That's what you do. You gotta pay several hundred dollars a month out of your check, after tax earnings or whatever. Possibly pre-tax, if you're lucky. But anyway, it's several hundred, in many cases, per month, just to have a portion of your medical bill covered if and when you get sick and need medical treatment. So obviously the better way in a highly industrialized, you know, free market democratic society would be one in which we are able to clearly know what it costs to fund a hospital properly, you know, and to have the proper number of medical staff, medical professionals to properly treat the population of our size. We have 300 million people, so we need X number of medical professionals, you know, and a certain number of, phys you know, physicians and general practitioners and specialists in certain things. Certain areas will need a higher percentage of whatever, you know, other areas, whatever. But yeah, what does it cost to pay to keep the hospitals going and the various um, medical health care related fields and, and services that are that are out there that people need to be able to access and let's make sure that those are being paid for. Now what the health insurance industry does if our country decides to make health care a right, I, I, to be perfectly honest, I don't really care. <laughs> um, what, th those are companies, you know, they're for-profit entities. That is their specific purpose. Um, if there is no longer a need for health insurance, then there is no longer a need for health insurance. And those companies, yes, may indeed go bankrupt. The physical assets they own, if there's any value in their company, whatever value there is will be bought out by something else. And that, that's, that's how it goes. It's called business. You know, tough break. Uh, if you're an insurance company that's diversified and isn't just only in health insurance, is also in life insurance and other forms of insurance, disability insurance, casualty insurance, whatever, then you, you may still have, um, you know, proper revenue streams moving forward. But yes, most likely you're going to have to, have to restructure in some way if you are a ins health insurance company and healthcare becomes a right in the United States of America. The problem is, what happens to a specific health insurance company shouldn't really be the main concern of the government. Now, the working class people who work for said company, no, that should be a specific concern. Okay, th these people who may lose their jobs, 
what can we do there? Because a, a certain sector of the economy is just going to become instantly no longer really viable. Why are people going to pay $200 a month for something that isn't even as good as what they get for free? You, you know, you're basically, you'd be paying $200 a month and getting nothing in return, r really. The, they would be exchanging no value. They, and so if you're going to continue to give an insurance company money, they're going to have to be offering you some form of protection beyond your basic rights. You, you don't have to pay out of pocket for your basic rights. Your basic rights are self-evident, are guaranteed. So, yeah, you don't have to pay more money to a company to have basic rights. We have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So healthcare falls under that life category. Under the kind of liberty category is the universal basic income, or freedom dividend. Is a better way to probably think of it, freedom dividend. Because it's a dividend. Okay, it's, it's based off of how the economy is doing. Why is the economy robust and growing? Because of the working class. Yes, the, the wealthy are... are or certainly have a certain level of importance and the CEO of a big company yes they, they, they have a certain level of importance is it 1,000 times more important than the people doing all the work of said company probably not and are there other people that could probably do the same or better job as that CEO pick any CEO well yes of course yeah yeah the a lot of times those machines, the big massive behemoth companies, they kind of run themselves. When they run into trouble is when certain CEOs try to change it too much. Just kind of let the thing run. You know, if it's a company that's been around a while, yeah, you, you know, stay in tune with the times and stuff, but if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, if you're Coca-Cola, just keep making, you know, soft drinks and, you know, getting them out to make sure all your uh, stores that are stocked with Coca-Cola. So, you know, make sure you just keep your production at the appropriate level so that you can keep selling Coke around the world. Um, but, you know, all the factories and trucks and all, all those sort of things, there's various levels of management there that's taking care of all that. The CEO is not handling all the specific logistics of all that. He doesn't really have to do all, any of that. Um, you know, so universal basic income is basically, you know, however the money is collected to fund the universal basic income initially, I think you start with sort of the uh, excise tax on the sort of uber affluent, anything over X gets taxed a pretty good amount. So anything over whatever, 10 million in a year, 20 million in a year, gets taxed at a pretty good rate. You get a lump sum of money collected over a little stretch. And then we start investing it in various things that have a benefit to people, life, uh, in, on, in this country. You know, real life human beings. Universal basic income is basically one of those things that would eventually fund itself. You know, you start out with some basic amount that's, that the government can easily afford, 500 a month or whatever some basic amount basic meaning basic for most people it's not going to be enough to live off it's just a, a bit of a cushion 
but then it, it would be eventually tied to a specific number raised. So then, over after a certain period of time, you would just declare what the next dividend is for the next for the upcoming year or quarter or whatever, you know. And it would just be dispersed in monthly payments to everyone eighteen and older. Easy peasy, you know. The money get gotten by the vast majority of people would be spent generating, you know, commerce and whatnot. Uh, some of the money collected by the most affluent, a universal basic income, if you're making, you know, 100000 a month, is probably not something you're going to worry about too much. But for a person that's making maybe thirty grand a, a year, you know, getting an extra 500 bucks a month, or even, heaven forbid, a thousand, uh, that's going to help out a lot. So universal basic income is not a handout. It's not a uh, whatever. It's a way of just sort of... And leveling the playing field does not mean everyone makes the same. Leveling the playing field means you're, you're just... Both teams are playing on the same field. Yeah, one, sometimes when I, one time when I played rugby, both teams, we were I was on a level playing field with the team I was playing against. My team was playing against. Now, the team we were playing against... They beat us pretty royally, 55 to nothing, but it was a level playing field, you know. We were on the same field, you know. So, um, unlevel playing field would, would almost literally mean that, like, we'd be trying to play another team that's not even on the field, and we'd be sort of, like, just, they would be scoring, try touchdowns or tries or whatever it's going over all over us and uh you know we're not even allowed to be on the field to stop them so you know the score final score is 500 to nothing because they had an unopposed defense because the field they were on we weren't allowed to be on you know or something but they still like pretended like they were playing against us so that would be an unlevel playing field so level playing field does not mean everyone gets paid the same or anything it just means that you're allowed to participate you know you're allowed to go for it you know here here's the here's the basics you know you got you got your your gear you know like for the rugby analogy you know you got your your boots you got your uniform get your mouth guard in you're ready to go got your kit on you can step on the field i mean the other team you're playing against on the same level playing field, yeah, they might uh, they might be quite a bit bigger, faster, stronger, and just you know dominate. Or it might be the opposite. Maybe you're on the team, you're playing that other team, and it's a nice level playing field, but you're the team that's got the massive edge. You know, I was once on a match where we won over a hundred to nothing. I've also been matches where a sevens game where, like I said, we. My team lost 55 to nothing in a sevens match. That's tough to do. But again, it was a level playing field, though, in the most literal sense. So level playing field does not mean everyone gets paid the same. It just means you're allowed to... You have more of an opportunity to compete. You're allowed to compete. Universal basic income kind of helps with that. It smooths some of the edges. You know, the, some of the barriers to entry... Uh, it allows a little bit more flexibility in what you 
are going to choose to do, which of course is one of the reasons why the Republican Party is so against such a thing. They don't, they don't want the working class to be flexible, to be independent, to be more self-reliant. They want them to be kind of um, overly reliant on the corporate empire, you know, and to sort of need the f corporate empire in order to survive. You know, so universal basic income kind of gives you just a, just that much extra bit of a cushion. You know, so you're, you're not having to pinch pennies quite as bad. And maybe you can look into opportunities that more fit, fit your particular skill set instead of just sort of settling in in some corporate dreary work, like working in a fucking call center for three and a half years. And didn't even get it was a cubicle job, and I didn't even get to sit in the same, same cubicle every morning. It finally changed it where we'd have a, a desk drawer that we could put our stuff, but we'd be sitting at a different desk each day. So you'd go to your little desk drawer, pull out my couple of photos and little things just to have something sort of personal to have up. Sit on just a screen all day. I don't spend eight hours a day talking to people about their damn cable bill. It's soul draining. It sucks, you know. But it's because a company got too big. You know, you, you can't just have, you know, the, the local company, you know, and maybe a few locations if it's a bigger city, that's, that, that company takes care of cable and whatever in that city. And maybe there's one other competitor or something even, but it's just, that's what they do. They just take care of the cable in one city. So you got a few different locations you can go to. And the people you can either talk to live, or you can just call them up at the office. Got questions. But that's that's not really what Comcast is. You know, if you call and have questions, you'll be... It's not going to be someone... Like, I didn't even live in an area that had... I worked for Charter and Comcast. I didn't even live in an area that had Charter. So half the time I was talking to customers about a product that I had literally no experience with ever using that specific product because each company is a different company cable is cable but each company is, is a different company it's just the same industry you know and they've sort of decided not to truly compete with each other in many cases you know a lot of times there won't be in one area there will just be one cable company there'll be other tv internet phone providers but there'll just be one cable company that's actually on the cable line. So, you know, I think uh, universal basic income and then also like free education and uh, skills training, investment, they help improve the efficiency of our economy and make our, our people less reliant on big corporate massive empires. Um, Corporations aren't necessarily all bad. There is a reason that corporations exist, but they do, there is a limit to their positive benefit to a society once they get to a certain size. You know, um, they can kind of, because it's an entity that only wants to continue to grow. And that's its only, seems to, in many cases, many of those big corporate entities seems to be their only objective. And so grow until when, and, and grow to what end? What is what is the end goal? We get, 
we as a society at some point have to kind of, and, and as a species, we have to come to grips with the idea of these big, massive corporate entities. When is big, when is too big finally, like, too big? Like, you know, they, they will not stop. They don't, you know, and the people running them have access to great, massive wealth and power. You know, if you're the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company, and there's some sort of, you know, salary package and bonus package based off of whatever, yeah, you're going to be making some massive monies. And then if you have stock options and stuff like that in said company, and it improves, you know, the stock price improves a certain percent over a few years, you know, you're talking massive, massive amounts of money just going to one individual. So... There continues to be an ever-increasing economic incentive to continue to grow the thing. And growing means, you know, driving out existing competition or clearing out on, you know, virgin lands, you know, virgin lands to, you know, expand commercial development, which then com expands residential development because then you got to, like, get people there to work and stuff. And then there's... So a lot of weird ebbing and flowing of people moving around to try to catch these sort of booms in certain areas. To, um, you know, there's people kind of moving all around to just try to kind of make it in this country. Like, wh where's the area that's got the, you know, most opportunity? But then you're also trying to find that area that's not too sold out, that isn't too overly corporatized. I kind of, me personally, I kind of went in the complete opposite direction. I live in a place where there's no corporate stores, really. A couple corporate banks. There's an Ace Hardware. But, uh, you know, there, there's no no McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's. There's none of that shit. There's no Home Depot, Office Max. And I do not miss those things at all. I certainly do not miss a Walmart. Like, at all, you know. And the longer I'm away from them... Uh, the less I miss them, you know, it's like, why can't life be like this? Where in your town or even in a city, all the restaurants are basically one-off restaurants. They're, they're all owned by a person that lives in that area pretty much, you know, and is making cuisine that the people in that area really dig or into. And it's, you know, like every, everything is kind of kind of truly nurtured by the people living in that community all the businesses that are there are the people living in that area that are you know benefiting from said business and making that business run that's just not really the case obviously with a lot of corporations a lot of people that are making big decisions on certain specific locations and of corporate things might you know drop into town and it that location once every few months or something. They have no real connection to the place except as a tourist, maybe, you know, but they're going to be ones making important decisions on said location of that big business with, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of locations around the country. So free education, universal basic income, healthcare, as well as infrastructure investment, are all investments in the working class, investments in the people. They're direct benefits to the working class people. And they are benefits to the people regardless of what political affiliation they have or what religion they follow or what their race or ethnicity is. 
Free education means free education. All publicly funded schools would be open to the public. You would still have to be accepted, and each respective public school would have its own respective admission standards to get in. And if you achieve said standards, and they admit you, then you can go. You know where you're going to live while you're there? You sort that out. You might need to borrow some money if you don't have any saved already. If you don't want to work full-time while going to school, you may have to borrow some money to cover sort of basic living expenses if the universal basic income is not enough. But as far as tuition and books, no. No, you don't need to pay for that because it's a public school. Now, if it's a private school, that's something different, obviously. But yeah, any publicly funded university, you'd be, el you'd be eligible for. You, you would have to apply and be accepted. So there is that. It's a higher education. So you gotta, you got to apply to these places and get accepted. And some of them have different standards and have a higher reputation or whatever. I went to a regional school, mostly because it was cheaper. And because, you know, I wasn't a great student in high school. But it was still college, still university, still an accredited university and all that. It was, But it was certainly a little bit easier to get in than, you know, say, getting into UW or Washington State University. I graduated from Eastern Washington University. But that particular university is, uh, and the town it's in, Cheney, it's kind of a ghost town since coronavirus hit. And uh, there's been some concerns that, you know, the school might not make it. That it might, you know, have to considerably downsize or change dramatically over these next few years because there's just, there's no one on campus. A lot of the businesses in Cheney are closing and stuff and you know a lot of these issues economic issues that are going on right now in this country could have been avoided with investments in the people and that, that's really what they are you know everyone chips in a little bit everyone pays taxes with all these programs there wouldn't really be any need for the working class to have their tax rate go up you know there, there, there's a lot of spending and there's a lot of excess spending by the government on things that they shouldn't really be spending money on. You know, president should be afforded a certain number of days of vacation time. Any any vacation time they use outside of that is out of their own. They they need to pay for that out of pocket. So you're president of the United States. You, you get how about one week of vacation a year, maybe two weeks. Okay, so you. Donald Trump wants to go to Mar-a-Lago, Mar-a-Lago for two weeks and spend the whole time golfing. All right, you know, although ideally you probably should take uh, not all your vacation at once, but it needs to be something like that where like any president that's taking more, like too much vacation time and using taxpayer dollars to cover his vacation costs that there needs to be a cap of some kind, you know, we can't just, that just seems ridiculous, you know, the the idea that just golfing trips alone are going to cost the U.S. taxpayers several hundred thousand dollars just to pay one guy and all the people guarding him to go golfing at a golf resort that he owns, and even though he's supposedly a billionaire. And could certainly, you know, get to the course and all that on his own. We have to pay for all that, and that those monies add up really quick.
infrastructure investment just means safe roads and bridges and you know investment in the uh electric grid and stuff like that uh you know make sure we're using the best and most efficient form of energy available and that it's being distributed you know safely economically uh and that you know the roads and bridges we drive on are safe so lots of jobs there uh there's lots of things that always need to be repaired fixed um improved and so the people do that you know and it's their jobs that those kind of got to do it you got to do it kind of jobs you know jobs that need to be done need to make sure that the people that do those kind of jobs earn a good living doing it you know so best way to do it you know i'm i'm not sure with investing in infrastructure i don't think necessarily a job core type thing new deal whatever government workers necessarily i think it, the best is sort of funding to entity that does construction overseeing said project um by government and then just to make sure it's on time i think that's generally the best way to do it but you know if you have you know the best and brightest people joining government then you could have a department of commerce depart labor secretary and uh, department of transportation secretary kind of working together on a certain uh uh plan to improve a certain you know highway system or train system or whatever or get the the a, a high speed rail plan sorted out you know one of those uh, like a electromagnetic solar power powered bullet train that goes over 200 miles an hour or whatever you know uh something that we already should be doing that but that was kind of like promised to us my generation when I was a kid like what the future would be like by about this time we're like nowhere near it it's like the only thing that's different now than when I was a kid is these this thing that I'm talking into right now the you know the portable phone cell phone you know that's that's really about the only thing that's different than like you know streaming video and stuff but it's still just like on a TV or whatever but we're not like not necessarily flying cars and I don't know you're still digging holes in the ground to make things go So, you know, as much as uh, a lot of my things are about like the anti-republican thing cuz what they are is the organization of protections or so the wealthy. What I really am is a progressive. So, I'm for healthcare should be a right, education should be a right, a basic income should be a right, and as well as we should be investing in the infrastructure. We should be investing in the people. The people are what is most important. You know, not the uh stock portfolios of wealthy people. So hopefully this stretch of time, these couple months of final Trump months will awaken some of those that have been supporting them and make them realize that, you know, they they gotta start looking into some other options, better options that better represent their interests. Because there is a better way for our society to run. And it certainly isn't by promoting greed and hatred and division and uh, incompetence, or you know, just sort of blindly following such ideas as the Republican Party has done. There, there is a better way for our society to function. You don't just have to blindly follow the Republican Party 
because you don't like abortion or something, or because you're a Christian. You know, Republican Party protects the interests of the wealthy. That's what they do. So, you know, if, if that's their primary thing, what are primary objectives of a Christian? You know, it, it, is, is it make sure wealthy have more money? I'm pretty sure it's not. You know, that slight hit of sarcasm. I mean, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Forgive our trespasses as we forgive as we forgive those who trespassed against us. Deliver me not from temptation, but deliver me from evil. You know, be kind, be empathetic. You know, treat others how you want to be treated. You know, do things that help others, not just yourself. So, if those are core principles of you, of someone out there, then why vote for the organization whose primary objective is cutting taxes for the wealthy and, and corporations? That, that's what they do. Investing in the working class, investing in healthcare, th those things are just not what they consider important. You know? not something they care about. Now hopefully there'll be in the future more options for progressives besides just the Democrats as well because Democrats they're the lesser of the two evils which does of course mean that neither organization is all that great. I'm not a big fan of the Democrats. It's just sort of by default. Their primary objectives are not cutting taxes for the wealthy generally speaking although some Democrats do indeed support that kind of thing. It's not as universal that that's kind of it. It's the lesser of the two evils, you know. It's and there's also plenty of great people in the Democratic Party, decent, hardworking, empathetic, caring individuals who genuinely want to serve the public. Genuinely, yeah, you know, that's what they're about. Those kind of personalities are harder to find in the Republican Party, at least on the national stage. Those that are genuinely there to protect the interests of people. There's, those kinds of people are just harder to find within the national Republican Party. The Democratic Party just seems to have a higher percentage of those. It's still too low of a percentage, of course, but they at least have a decent number that are folks that are genuinely concerned with and wanting to protect the interests of human beings, you know, people in this country, you know, so that's a good thing, but it would be better if there was a higher percentage that felt that way, It'd be better if a higher percentage of those that are in government were genuinely concerned with the interests of the people and not just getting more money and power and retaining power like Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell and Trump. Jim Jordan, Matt Gates, you know, there's a whole slew of them, but just their primary concern is just retaining power, and that's about it, so, hopefully people start making uh, better choices in the future and start better protecting their interests, and uh, hopefully during this time too, people continue to be safe, wear the mask in public, can, the coronavirus is not going away anytime soon, the vaccine will be a while. So be safe. Take precautions. Thanksgiving coming up. Let's do the right thing. You know.
I'm I'm laying low, not going anywhere for me personally, and it's kind of a bummer, but it is what it is. So you gotta protect yourself and those around you. So stay safe out there. God bless. This is Gary. Thinking out loud.